It says, around that time, the word of God was rare. And then you begin to hear this hopeful note. It says that Samuel didn't yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But of course, he's about to hear God's word to him. And then something wonderful is going to happen. And so all the way through the Bible, whenever you see God working, it is always that revivals take place in association with the word of God, a recovery of truth. I think about a passage like in... um, In Nehemiah chapter 8, do you remember how soon after the building of of the wall, Ezra gets up with some of his fellow priests and they begin reading the law to the people of God. And it says that they read it from morning until midday and they were explaining it as they go along. And then it also says that they have to tell the people not to mourn or weep because everyone was weeping as they heard the words of the law. And instead, they had to force themselves to rejoice because they'd understood the words declared to them. And this is, this is a moment of revival that's taking place in the Bible. I know you wouldn't normally put that word on it, but that's what it is. They're hearing the word being taught to them afresh. They're understanding it. And their hearts are being moved in a way they've never experienced before. And God is reviving them. He's reviving real faith. He's reviving passion for his own glory. You get the exact same thing happening in the New Testament, like in Acts, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. The work of the Spirit in reviving those thousands of souls that come to to know Jesus that day, the revival that took place on that day is a revival, a recovery of belief in the Word of God. Because it keeps saying how it says, when they heard this, listen, it's, it's about hearing words. They were cut to the heart. And, and they said, what should we do? And it goes on, and Peter says, that with, it says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. And he says, so those who received his word were baptized. All the way through the Bible, when you see revivals cropping up, there's a recovery of the revealed word of God. And it's also the same in church history. The Reformation, when... Um, Martin Luther kicked it off with the 95 Theses nailed on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Was a recovery, a revival that was a recovery of the truth of the gospel. You remember how he said that he and Philip Melanchthon just, they they just sat in in Wittenberg drinking beer and the word of God did it all. Now it's not an excuse just to have brides and just chill out all the time. He was a hardworking man, so let's just get this straight. But his point was that all he had to do was put gospel truth into the tracks that they were circulating around Europe, and that it was like putting a match to the tinder. Everything just exploded as the revelation of God's word swept across Europe. Every revival in the history of the world has been a recovery of the truth of the gospel and of the word of God. The same happened in the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Kicked off with George Whitfield taken up as well with John Wesley, Charles Wesley. These guys did something that was unknown at the time, began preaching in the open air. And they experienced personal revivals. But then they began preaching the message that you must be born again, which to people who are born in sort of, you know, nominal Christianity and not really understanding the gospel is totally radical. But it was a recovery of biblical truth, revealed words, ignited by the Holy Spirit, and revival exploded across certainly Britain, United States and other parts of the world. And the reason why I'm trying to paint this as a backdrop for you is to help you to see and agree with me about the kind of war that we're in as church leaders, what we're doing, 
you know, our country's been involved in a number of wars recently, which nobody really has much heart to be involved in. Afghanistan, the second Iraq war, involved in bombing Syria. And part of the reason is no one really knows why we're engaged in these battles. It's so far away from us. It's so different to what it was like in Britain in the 1940s when we were fighting Hitler. Every person, man, woman, and child, was engaged in the warfare because they understood what the battle was about. And I want to urge you guys to understand exactly what it means to be involved in, in this war that we're involved in and that it, it really comes down to just this one thing. Whether or not people will accept the revealed word of God as the word of God or not. That's the dividing line. That's the battle that we're fighting. That's why when, at the end of Romans 10, when Paul's talking about um, his call to be a preacher, do you remember how he puts it? That he asks the questions, how will they call on him who they not believed, and believe in whom have they not heard? And he says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. He understood that the entirety of his call could be boiled down to that that we're here to communicate the word of Christ and the battle is whether people will receive it or not. Now, the, where this becomes a little bit more pointed for us is that if that's the picture of the whole war that we're involved in, I want you to understand that some of the specific battles have circulate around specific issues that arise around particular ideas and truths that are challenged. I'm talking about issues like the gay issue or gender issues. These issues are kicking off big time, um, certainly where we are and in the UK and in the United States, and I'm sure it's, it's prevalent here. I mean, we're getting to a, a point now where heroes of the liberal establishment, like there's a woman called Jermaine Greer who has been fighting for feminist values and the, the rights of women to do whatever they want for decades, but because she will not accept that a man who dresses and cuts off his bits and, 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 and says he's a woman is a woman, she's being no-platformed in universities, where she would once have been held up as a hero, she's now being regarded as a fascist. And it shows you how quickly the times are changing where we are. And so what I want you to see is, okay, if... If the war is, the bigger, grander war is about the revealed word of God, and maybe the capital city, the heart of what we're seeking to defend is the gospel, out there on the front lines are specific issues which may feel like they're less important to you, and you may want to kind of give way a little bit here and there. It can be to do with headship issues and men and women's roles to do with the uniqueness of Christianity, or to do with judgment, all these kinds of stuff. It may feel like it's less to do with the, the heart of our faith. But I want to encourage you to understand that these battles are no less important in the grand scheme of the war that we're fighting, because where you hear the gunfire in the distance, this is the enemy trying to make an inroad. The issue that's at stake when we're thinking about this whole thing of the denial of God's word is that whilst we're tempted to, to understand our faith as being a kind of situation where we're more or less moving in the same direction, even if some of us disagree on some fairly significant things, as long as we got the core right, we're moving in the same direction. 
I really fundamentally want to challenge you on that. You know, back in the early 1900s, a man called J. Gresham Macken wrote this amazing book, which I think every pastor should have on his bookshelf and read, called Christianity and Liberalism. And he was dealing with the whole issue of the denial of the Word of God in the United States at the time. And what he tries to set up in that book is he says, listen, it's not about different forms of Christianity, roughly just doing things slightly differently but moving in the same direction. He says these are two different religions. You've got one religion which says God's word has come down to us, revealed from on high, and another one which says we discover truth for ourselves. And so he says our greatest danger is from within the church. He writes it like this. He says the greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from the enemies outside, but from the enemies within. It comes from the presence within the church of a type of faith and practice that is anti-Christian to the core. Macken was one of these guys who saw things in very black and white terms. I tend to be quite similar in my temperament. But I think he had a point. I think that maybe our tendency as charismatic evangelicals is to downplay the importance of truth and doctrine, statements of faith, all these kinds of things. I want to urge you to realize that where the enemy wants to attack us is usually by getting inside our system of faith, our way of believing, and eroding our confidence in God's word. And that when he has some kind of success in that, things begin to topple. This is why things are so dire in the UK right now. It's all around teaching. It's all around doctrine. If I could put a man in every pulpit of the churches in England who preaches the gospel and believes that the Bible is the word of God, I think we'd see these churches becoming fil- filled in, in a short space of time. Packer quotes Augustine on this. He says, In an authority so high that scripture admit but one officious lie, and there will not remain a single passage of those apparently difficult or practice, to practice or to, to believe, which on the same most pernicious rule may not be explained as a lie uttered by the author willfully to serve a purpose. What he means is this, that if you use a a system of logic to start breaking down parts of the Bible that you find difficult to believe, practice, or go along with, it's not long before the same way of thinking begins to erode the very core of our faith. And so I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, to be those who, in Isaiah's word, tremble at the word of God in humility and contriteness. I want us to move on and think a little bit about what I've called functional denial of the word of God, which I think is going to be perhaps a little bit more pointed in certain ways. You've probably heard Keller use this word functional whatever and What I'm trying to put across to you here is that we can, with our mouths, assent to a belief in the Bible as the Word of God, but with our practice, deny it by the way that we do church, and particularly our kind of philosophy of ministry. And I want to highlight two areas in which I think that this is possible. One of them particularly has to do with the fact that we're charismatics, and the other has to do with the fact that we are evangelicals who care about the growth of the church. The first is this. That we can be those who functionally deny God's word when we expect the Spirit of God to move apart from the word of God. 
I would never want to say that that can't happen. When you read the stories of revivals, I mean, it's incredible how, how many times people have just been drawn by God's Spirit to come into a church and found themselves on their face before God before they've even heard a word uttered. So I don't think the Spirit is ever contained in any way. He can do what He wants. But the problem is that so many Christians think that we can kind of manufacture the work of the Spirit apart from and outside of just the plain, straightforward teaching of God's Word. And I think we can trace a lot of this back to the influence of a man called Charles Finney. A lot of the church growth movement actually takes many leaves out of his book. And so much of that has been quite harmful, actually, to to what we are as evangelicals. Charles Finney was a man who, you know, before him he had Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards believed in the sovereignty of God and believed that when, when God moves in revival, it is his work coming down to man. He was a Calvinist through and through. He believed that salvation is entirely of God and that we can do nothing to manufacture a move of God except ask him and pray that he comes. But then you move to a guy called Charles Finney in the early 1800s, and he began to talk about ways and means that you could almost manufacture and create a revival. It was his conviction that if you followed his steps, you could have revivals anywhere you want. And he wrote this. He said, for a long time, it was supposed by the church that a revival was a miracle, an interposition of divine power. It's only within a few years that ministers generally have supposed revivals were to be promoted by the use of means. God has overthrown generally the theory that revivals are miracles. Finney sowed the seeds for a kind of way of doing church which seeks to kind of bypass truth and affect people just directly on their emotions, manipulate people and push them towards decisions. Because it's rooted in a view that man can basically choose whether he wants to follow Christ or not. And it's cut away from the view in the Bible, which is that God saves men. And so when you get to the more extreme and almost ridiculous end of the scale, I think we've got many situations where people are... I mean, I picked up this satirical article, just, it came out just last week, which just illustrates so, what, so well what I'm talking about. It's called... The Holy Spirit unable to move through congregation as the fog machine breaks. It says, describing the experience as tragic, local worship leader Axel Johnson found his congregation totally unable to worship as the church's primary fog machine malfunctioned right in the middle of the Sunday Sunday morning set. We barely got through our new song. It was a real train wreck, a visibly shaken Johnson told us while sipping a latte macchiato in the church cafe after the service. The device spluttered to a halt and ceased. Onlookers said it totally and instantly killed their personal worship experience. And he says, we're not losing the Holy Spirit again. Not on my watch anyway, Johnson declared. (laughs) It's a joke. It's satire. But it's picking up on something really real that's prevalent in evangelical churches which is the view that we can kind of manufacture the atmosphere, the vibe in which people are going to have this euphoric experience of the Holy Spirit outside of and apart from God working through their minds and their understanding. I had experience of this as a, as a teenager because I, we used to go to these youth meetings that were gatherings of youth from different churches. And uh, one of the, some of the guys had this 
this idea that maybe we should just get together and not do anything except play, get the DJ to play some trance music. And we'd all just sort of sway to the music and just hope to have some kind of experience and encounter with God. And, uh, you know, did we? Of course we didn't. You know, I'm sure some of them had some kind of transcendental meditative thing going on. But was it God? Of course it wasn't. Because God always works through his word, doesn't he? And so also, even in churches like ours, people ask questions like, how did you enjoy the time of worship? And personally, I think that's a deeply confused and mistaken question to ask. Because really, it doesn't matter how much you enjoy it. It's about whether you're giving it to God or not. How much he enjoyed it. Whether it's sincere. Just Sunday night, we were up up at 3CI, and it was such a great experience. And nothing that I'm about to say is any criticism of the church. But a guy came up to me afterwards who was new there. So he was no reflection of the congregation. He said he was a Christian. He brought his, uh, his girlfriend to me and said, she's not a Christian, but she wants to become a Christian. He said, can you pray with her? And I, um, I said, well, can I, can I talk to her first? Can I ask her some questions? He said, okay. So I went up and started to ask her some questions. And he quickly was like interrupting. No, can you just pray with her? And I was like, just wait a second. I said to her, so you want to become a Christian, do you? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? She said, no. <laughs> so I immediately thought, well, there's some work to do here. And I, I passed her along to uh, Clint who works there, and he, and he reprimanded the guy for going out with a non-Christian girl and then gave her some decent counsel. But we asked, what was going on there? What was, what was going on in his mind? Where was this confusion coming from? And to my thinking, the issue is that he'd, he'd, they'd both confused an emotion, a, a kind of euphoric experience of being in such a big meeting with so many people worshiping God and hearing teaching that kind of resonated with her, And they thought that that meant that maybe she wants to be a Christian. And what I'm trying to help you to see is that in the Bible, the Holy Spirit works in and through his word always. And that if we just try and play on emotions or try and whip people up or do all these kinds of things, we're denying the way that God wants to work. You know, we often as charismatics talk about the importance of word and spirit and bringing these two things together. But actually in the scriptures, these two things are never apart. Glory! Yeah! So, when God speaks, out of his mouth comes breath. The word for breath in the Bible, you know it, everyone knows it, is ruach, spirit. You can't speak words without spirit coming out of your mouth. This is why, you remember how so many of the Psalms being Hebrew poetry had this kind of parallelism thing going on, where one line says it one way and the next line says the same truth in a slightly different way to reflect and fill out the picture. So you get this going on in Psalm 33, where it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath, the ruach, the spirit of his mouth, all their host. He's saying, word and spirit go together to do what God wants to get done. So also, in the New Testament, when Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, He says, 
our gospel came to you not only in word, there's one side of it, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit. And then just lest you think that those two things are, are working separately, he then says, and with full conviction. So Paul's view of the, whole, the way the word works is that the Holy Spirit rams home the word into people's minds to convict their spirits to repent and submit to God. And friends, when we divorce in our practice, in our way of doing church, the work of the Spirit from the Word of God, we're functionally denying the Word of God. Here's a second way that I think we can functionally deny the Word of God. It's when we expect growth and success because of our methods and not solely attribute those things to God through His Word. What do I mean? Well, this is a slightly more subtle matter, but it has to do with your philosophy of ministry again. And I hope I can explain to you what I'm thinking, because I think it's very important. In these verses in Isaiah, God sets up a contrast between those who think that they can build for him and those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word. So when he's asking these questions, what's the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? He says, I've made everything. He's trying to press us to realize our limitations. He doesn't want people, pastors, church leaders, whoever, who think that they can build for God. He wants us to be those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word. And this then begins to reflect back on where we place our confidence in our philosophy of ministry, our strategies, our leadership, our marketing, all of that stuff. And I'm not trying to say to you that, and it, that, that is totally unimportant or insignificant. But I do want to press home that I think sometimes our confidence has been entirely misplaced and dishonoring to God. How do we get into this confusion? Well, in this way, I think it comes down to three things. That first of all, we interpret success as numbers. So the, the most important metric of the health of your church becomes the amount of bums you have on seats on any given Sunday. That results, secondly, in pragmatism, which is to say, whatever works, whatever gets more bums on seats, must be the right thing to do. Because it's ticking the box of what we define success to be. Numbers, growth. And that leads to a third thing, the result that we can then distort, hide, downplay, or just kind of be highly selective with the Word of God. Because if we're honest, the raw Word of God has a tendency to not fill your church all of the time. I want us to think about this for a few moments because I think that the modern evangelical obsession with church growth is not a biblical obsession. I'll give you a couple of examples to try and just fill out what I'm trying to say to you here. When, if I can find it, in Jeremiah chapter 20, there are these very famous verses where... Here it is. He says, If I say, I will not mention him, that's God, or speak any more in his name, 
There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And we hear words like that, and we think, yes, that's one of the courageous men that we, we'd love to aspire to be like. Jeremiah, the word of God's in his bones, and he's just too weary from holding it in, and he can't contain it. It's got to come out. And you think, what a hero. And then you understand the reason why he wants to be silent. It's for reasons like this. He says, oh, Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you've prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. That's why he wanted to be quiet, because the word of God got him into trouble, made everybody laugh at him. There was nothing attractional about Jeremiah's ministry, nothing at all. It goes on and says, this is, this is how, what people are saying to him. They're saying, denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends watching for my fall. His close friends want to denounce him because of the message that Jeremiah is bringing. He closes off this section. He says, why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? This is a hero. Fire in my bones. Actually, everyone around him hated him. Lest you think that's just an Old Testament thing, I want you to, maybe it's helpful if you open your Bible to John 6, because this is Jesus, okay? John chapter 6 has just been such a formative thing for my understanding of this whole issue. Because it begins like this. It begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000. There's nothing more attractional than food, right? It's literally just, he just has people eating out of his hand. And so much so that after he's fed the 5,000, he crosses the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And they all find their way to him on the other side, which is a phenomenal thing because this is a big lake. That's how much they want to be near Jesus. Now, for any of us in that situation, we'd be thinking, this is the height of my success. I've got 5,000 people following me around the country, wanting to listen to what I have to say, and all I have to do is just give them a bit more bread. What does he do? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And he goes on to explain what that is. And there's many verses, I won't read them, but as things progress through the chapter, his teaching gets harder and harder and harder and more and more pointed until he comes to a point where he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, it's in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Unsurprisingly, they hear this teaching and they think to themselves, he's loony. He wants us to eat him. And it says, very poignantly for us, listen, it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The crowd, they just dispersed because the teaching was too hard for them. And what I want you to see, friends, is that this was very deliberate on Jesus' part. 
it would have been no problem for him to keep the crowd. No problem at all. He could just do a few more miracles, give people what they want, and he's got, the crowd's going to grow. Pretty soon he's going to have the whole country eating out of his hands. But Jesus knew that there's a difference between building a crowd and making disciples. In some ways, actually having a crowd is, is, is much, much, much easier. If we, if we think that success in church is down to numbers, then frankly, we're going to have to say that the Catholics have pretty much got it down. Because most people who call themselves Christians are Catholics. And Joel Osteen is our, is our poster boy in the United States. And I'm no fan of his teaching. There's a difference between gathering a crowd and making disciples. And some of the root things, I think, going on in Jesus' mind come down to issues like this, that what you catch people on, you have to feed them on. For Jesus, that was very literal. If you catch them on giving them bread, then you have to keep giving them bread to keep the crowds interested. So friends, when you, when you build your whole church and ministry on just doing the stuff, the cool stuff, which gathers more people, you're going to have to keep giving them the cool stuff, which gathers more people, or pretty soon those people are going to leave you. What happens when you stop doing that? Do you still have a church? In John 6, a disciple is somebody who hears and believes the word of God. The chapter closes off in this profound way, because when Jesus turns to his 12, he asks them this question. He says, do you want to go away as well? It says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think Jesus would have counted that moment as a deep and profound success in his ministry. Peter knew there were no other options, and it didn't matter that the crowd had dispersed. He had the 12, and they believed. My conviction, friends, is that I don't think God wants us to build for him. I don't think he wants us to offer our ingenuity and our cleverness and our strategies and our marketing techniques and our coolness and our attractional vibe. I don't think that's what God wants at all. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. He says, this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We've got to kill our pride that thinks that we can do something for God, that we can make church better outside of the raw and adulterated, pure teaching of his, of his truth. It's going to affect how you handle the Bible if you take this stuff seriously. You're not going to go to it thinking, where's all the little bits that I think will appeal to this kind of person or that kind of person? You're going to go to it and be like, God, what do you want to say to this city? What do you want to say to the disciples in this room? How can I feed them, God? Some of the tests that I would want you to consider on this point. Here's one. Can your church be explained on any other grounds than the word of God? So what would do more harm to your church? If you were to water down, diminish, and decrease the teaching of the word, or if you were to 
take away your, you know, some of the stuff which is attracting your people, be it the venue, the vibe, the fog machine, whatever it is. I think of this as a kind of like the Gideon test of, of what we're doing in, in building a church. Because remember how when, when God whittled down Gideon's army from the many thousands to fight against the Midianites to 300, his reason was this. That if you have thousands, you beat them, you might think that you did it. But if you have 300 and you win, you'll know it was me. And I think the same is true in church work. I think a lot of churches can be explained pretty much on human terms. There are churches in London which, on the surface of things, seem to be raging success because their, their buildings are flooded with people. Sure, they don't talk about sin. Sure, they're not really going to offend anybody. And people can have any kind of lifestyle and they're going to find themselves unchallenged for years. But the place is full. It must be God. And I look at it and think, no, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd go there just for the experience. It's great fun. Can your church be explained on any other grounds than the pure word of God? And here's another question you could ask yourself. What would happen to your church if you preached like Jesus preached? If you took hard texts and hard truths and confrontational aspects of the gospel and put it in people's faces consistently and stripped away the other things which seem to be instrumental in gathering your people, would your church still exist? Friends, I want to encourage you not to be one who functionally denies the word of God by buying into your own growth and success methods in church life. Let it be God's word that builds real disciples. My last point has to do with confidence in the word, and I'll try and be very brief here. As I said, tomorrow I want to deal with this a little bit more and a bit more positively. But in terms of the language of Isaiah 66, friends, brothers and sisters, we want to be those who, in this language, are those to whom God looks, which means those upon whom his favor rests. When God looks on you, it means he's happy to bless you. This is the one to whom I will look, it says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I think part of what it means to be those who who God can favor is that we allow our whole philosophy of ministry to be shaped by the word of God and built upon the word of God. I printed off um, 1 and 2 Timothy. If you want to know what a godly philosophy of ministry is, just go to the pastoral letters. And I started going through with a highlighter, highlighting all the parts in these letters where Paul is addressing issues around doctrine and truth and the call to be preachers of the word of God. And I found that all the way through 1 and 2 Timothy, it's just absolutely covered with it. And here he is talking to his protege. I thought I'd just draw your attention to a few things. I'm just going to read verses as we, as we bring it around to a close. Here's one of the things he does. It keeps reminding Timothy, Timothy of all people, of the gospel. He says things like this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Just reminding Timothy of what Jesus came to do, which is pretty amazing because Timothy should know this stuff. He goes on. There is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul never wanted to assume the truth of the gospel. And so he keeps bringing it front and center, even before a man like Timothy, who'd learned at his feet. He reminds him of the gospel. 
Second, he keeps exhorting Timothy to be diligent and faithful in the word. And in fact, he, as you remember, he holds that up as a qualification for eldership. In Paul's mind, there's no such thing as an elder who hasn't, to some degree, been mastered by this book. If he can't open it and explain its truth in a way that makes sense to people, he shouldn't be an elder. It doesn't matter how good and strong his leadership gift is. It doesn't matter how good looking he is. None of, that thing, none of that stuff is relevant. He says he's got to be able to teach, which is why he says things like this to Timothy. And there's more I could read, by the way. I'm being highly, highly selective here. But here in 2 Timothy 2, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. get the feeling that in Paul's mind, he would have considered a preacher and a pastor who doesn't rightly handle the word of truth to be an embarrassment, certainly one that he's appointed. And so he says to Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed of yourself. You need to learn to rightly handle this book and to keep doing so. That's your job, my brother. Another thing he does is he keeps charging Timothy to keep teaching, preaching, exhorting, all the way through these two books. I think the reason why he has to do that is just because our temptation is always to downplay the importance and centrality of preaching. Something I want to talk to you about tomorrow. But here's a few of the verses which just resonated. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself. Is there any stronger language than that? He's saying, let this be your sole focus, my brother. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Nothing was more important for Paul than that Timothy remembered this stuff is why he says it again in the second letter. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and, in his, and his kingdom. By the way, is there any higher charge than that? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then he goes on to say the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time has come, friends. It's pretty much come, hasn't it? He cautions Timothy to guard this message. He says it twice, in both, once in both letters. At the end of the first one, he says, Oh, Timothy... Guard the deposit entrusted to you. It's the same kind of military language that PJ's been drawing our attention to. He's saying you need to set a watch, a praetorian guard around this treasure, this gospel deposit that you have. And then he says it again in the next letter. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Why? 
Why is Paul so repetitive and so urgent about the centrality of the word of God in his philosophy of ministry and that it be worked out in Timothy's ministry? Surely the answer again in 2 Timothy comes down to these words. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's ruach by God. It's spirited out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen.